morning, guys. Uh, if you are new here, what we've been doing on Sunday mornings is we've been um, taking the Gospel of Mark and just going through the entire book. And so if you guys uh, wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the book of Gospel of Mark, chapter 7 is where we're at. And I want to give you a really fast background as to what we've been looking at because the little section or the story that we're going to be reading today actually is a continuation of a story that we started last week. And if you recall, if you were here last week, uh, Jesus is confronted by a handful of theologians. They are called scribes and Pharisees. They traveled about 90 miles from Jerusalem, probably on foot down to the, or to the region of the Sea of Galilee, which was the preeminent area that Jesus did the majority of his ministry around. And uh, what they did is they confronted Jesus, and the question or the theological question that they confronted Jesus with was a question pertaining to uh, the cleanliness laws as they were identified as, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they were sitting down to a meal, and uh, none of them actually washed their hands. And so this caught the attention of the religious leaders. Now, we saw, said last week that typically when people ask questions, they are either looking for information because they're genuinely, humbly looking to be educated and to grow. Others ask questions simply because uh, they're critics, they're cynics, and they're looking for ways to trap. And this is who the religious leaders were. So they weren't genuinely looking for an answer. They were just looking to trap Jesus. So Jesus, to some degree, uh, returning the snarky favor, he kind of does not answer the question immediately. But what Jesus does is he kind of goes a little bit on a tangent and basically uh, gives them an answer that they weren't necessarily looking for. And what he tries to do is to get to the very root cause as to why they're asking the question. And we said last week that the main issue that they were really trying to understand was the issue of, uh, one, uh, who has supreme authority to really even describe who uh, can tell people what the Bible says. The second issue that was really at stake was who belongs to God, who are God's people, and what makes them clean, what brings them into right relationship. And we said last week that what Jesus did is he basically reoriented, reoriented everything and said, in so many words, that he's the supreme authority who has the ability to tell people what God's word actually says. So in other words, rather than arguing with Jesus, we need to listen to Jesus. And then secondarily, what we need to understand as well is that Jesus was basically saying is that the way to be made right with God is not through externalities like washing your hands and doing these other religious duties. It's through Jesus. That's what Jesus was trying to say. But now what Jesus does today is, again, we carry on sort of the argument that Jesus was having with these guys. Jesus now is actually going to get to the real issue that they were asking originally, which was the question of what makes somebody clean. So that's the main subject matter that we'll be taking a look at today, is really trying to understand what is it that makes someone clean. So I'm going to pray first, and then we'll read the passage of Scripture that we'll be taking a look at. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically try to point out there's four things I'll describe them as axioms, four axioms, or four principles, if you will, that basically Jesus is going to talk about in his story or in his rebuttal to these guys that are actually themes throughout the entire Bible. In other words, the Bible assumes these from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that these are four axioms that literally are all throughout the entire theme in the narrative of the Bible. So hopefully that makes sense. What I want to do right now is I'm going to pray, then we'll read, and then we'll begin to take a look at what Jesus says in the story. So... Let's pray, and then we'll read. Jesus, we ask for your help. We need your wisdom. God, what we don't want today is we don't want to just simply come and learn information about you. We want to learn who you are so that we can love you. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you. 
Because God, at the end of the day, what we don't want is we don't want to get stuck in religion. We don't want to trade or supplement our own types of insecurities and our own types of bondage for another type of religious bondage. We want to find freedom. True freedom comes through relationship with you. So God, I pray that you would make that path clear to us. Open our eyes. Help us to see Jesus very clearly. And that we'd find him beautiful. And that Jesus would so capture our hearts, bring transformation to our lives, and he'd be glorified in our times here that we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Mark chapter 7, we'll be picking up at about verse 14. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. Please feel free. If you don't own one, uh, we would love for you to have a Bible. Please take that. That's our gift to you. We would love for you guys to have a Bible. If not, we'll, we'll also have the up on the screen. So it says this in verse 14. And he, he called the people, that's Jesus, he called the people to them again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. This, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered into the house, he left the people and his disciples and then asked him about the parable. And then he said to them, Then you also are without understanding. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but into his stomach and then ultimately is expelled? This, in a parenthetical statement, Mark adds, is declared by this. He declared that all foods are clean. Verse 20, and then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from him, within him, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. There's four things, like I said, I want to go through them very quickly with you. Like I said, there are four axioms, four basises, four ideas, four foundational truths that the Bible affirms all throughout, that Jesus actually affirms here in this little teaching about what it means to be clean. Um, first of which we'll take a look at is this. One, it's just the assumption that all of us are unclean. All of us are defiled. We'll get back to that in a second. The second axiom is that we must, that we oftentimes misdiagnose what the cause of our defilement is. And again, we'll get back to that. Thirdly, uh, is that we're incapable of removing our own defilement. Fourthly, that we can become ultimately cleaned and purified by the way of another. And in this case, obviously, it becomes very clear that Jesus is the way, is the means by which defilement and filth are removed and our stains are made clean. So with that being said, I want to begin to jump in to take a look at the very first axiom that the Bible affirms, that Jesus affirms here, is that we're all defiled. And I find this interesting because Jesus had a lot of disagreements with the religious leaders. There's a lot of things that Jesus was literally going head-to-head, toe-to-toe with, and a lot of things that Jesus had reason to be frustrated with about these guys but when they come to him and they ask him Jesus how do people become made clean to some degree more or less um, Jesus basically recognizes that their solutions are incorrect however their identity of the problem is correct in other words Jesus affirms these religious leaders the basic fundamental reality that all people are unclean he affirms that I think this is really important to know, because like I said, Jesus had a lot of things that he, he disagreed with the disciples, or I'm sorry, with the religious leaders. Uh, he did not have any problem uh, going head-to-head with these guys. He did not have any problem confronting them on their false concepts, false theology, false 
ideologies, and that's exactly what we see here in the passage. But what Jesus does is he actually affirms the very fact that the fundamental reality that all people are defiled, he affirms that. And this is very important to know this. Because the Bible is going to go through this entire passage, this entire book from start to finish, really identifying this one main theme, is that we are, by nature, all defiled. Now, the Bible goes through many different ways, and it describes this in many different details. All right? For example, we can typically say that all have sinned, and that's true. All people have sinned. But what happens with sin is when we sin, there are various forms of sin. I'll tell you what those are in a second. Sin ultimately leads to a defilement. The word defilement basically means uncommon or unclean. Uh, and what ends up, or I should say common, meaning it separates from that which is uncommon like God. And what ends up happening is it causes a person to fall into a place where they're out of sync, out of rhythm, out of relationship for what God had originally created them for. So it's really important to know this. That in the very beginning, God created all things through his own word. He created Adam, Eve, the whole planet. Everything God gifted over to Adam and says, this is yours to enjoy. All things were rhythmic. All things were beautiful. All things were good. There is a, a beauty about all things. And what had ended up happening through sin, as we oftentimes know the story, uh, which was really more or less Adam rising up on his own saying, I'll be my own God. I'll answer to myself, not to God. I will be the one that will answer to my deepest longings. My deepest desires will be what I will pursue. And as a result of that, Adam turned his back on God. And by turning our backs on God, we turn away from life itself. That process leads to a level of defilement or brokenness is another way that we can look at it. Which ultimately, Romans tells us, leads to death. God also reaffirms, which really Paul is just reaffirming what God said in, Romans, or in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, is that the day that you eat of the fruit that I forbid you, you will die. In other words, the day that you turn from me, you will actually die. And that's what happened in the garden. So it goes sin, again, various shades of sin. You have things like transgression. Transgression basically more or less is someone drawing a line in the sand. In this case, God being the ultimate authority says, don't cross this line. And what happens is we cross that line. It's like a child being told by the mom and dad, don't eat the cookie in the cookie jar. And the child defiantly looks at mom and says, I'm going to take it, right? It's that little look on its face of devilishness. And that's what the idea of transgression is all about. We've all transgressed. The Bible also describes that we've all sinned. Sin is sort of a generic term that basically means we've missed the mark. Now, we sin by commission, meaning things that we commit, things that we do. We also sin by omission, meaning things that we know we should do, things that we know are right, things that we know are righteous, and yet we refuse to help out. We refuse to be a part of the solution. We end up becoming part of the problem. We sin by commission and omission. And the process or the action by which we as human beings engage in sin, transgression, and all of these other forms of not living to the image or to the purposes for which God created us and designed us actually lead to this disintegration or defilement and brokenness that ultimately are the precursors or precede death, that lead to death. We will ultimately die because we sin. The middle process is defilement. We all know this, but the problem is with our culture, we redefine it. So we don't like the word sin. In fact, you will probably never hear the word sin in the media, in the news. If you read a magazine, uh, you won't read a magazine and find that this is sinful or this event or this action was sinful unless 
It's like a fashion magazine, and they're comparing some guy that walks around wearing plaid with, like, stripes. You're like, that's sinful. Like, like you'll hear stuff like that, but it's, it's, it's not the same type of sin that the Bible describes sin. In other words, we don't like to use the word sinful uh, because it sounds too harsh, it sounds too critical, it sounds too archaic. So what we do in our culture, unfortunately, we redefine it. We call it like psychosis. We say that somebody has some sort of a dysfunction or they're ignorant or they're uneducated and this is the root cause for the things that you do and the way that you act and so on and so forth. But the Bible is going to tell us that really the root cause behind all things is that we sin. The problem is that we realize to some degree that there's things that are not right in our lives and so therefore we have a sense of defilement. So let me try to put it this way. All of us, I don't care who you are, we have all felt to some degree, to some shape, to some form, that if any of us at any point or any time were ever to be examined, our life were to be examined, our life were to be uh, standing before a bright light and under the examination table, that we have this overwhelming sense of fear that we would not pass inspection. That means we all know, whether you choose to describe it in biblical language or not, I would suggest you would, but we all know by the framework that I just described it in, we're all defiled. We're all defiled. We're all working from a place where we're trying to fix our defilement. But because we are all defiled, we'll start there, then we'll lead into the second thing that we'll take a look at here in a second. It's the second axiom is this. One, again, first axiom, we're all defiled, all unclean. Second axiom is this, is that we misdiagnose what causes our defilement. And this is very important. And this is exactly what happens in the text that we see before us. Three different occasions, Jesus actually describes what causes defilement and what doesn't cause defilement. Why is he doing this? Well, it's simple, because even the religious leaders of the day, and as well as his disciples, they misdiagnosed what the real problem was and how to solve it. This is really important for us to know this, because I don't think we progress in any way, shape, or form 2,000 years. We still act the same way. We still think the same way. We still might misdiagnose it, and oftentimes it's due to the fact that we don't really like the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to be confronted by the truth. We don't want to be contradicted by the truth. And that oftentimes proves the fact that we actually see ourselves as kings. How do kings act? Do kings like to be contradicted? Do kings like to be confronted? confronted? No. Kings love authority and autonomy. They love being in charge. And if anybody poses a threat to their ideology, their thinking, their concepts, their reign, their authority, their power, they become infuriated. They become angry, and they resist, and they fight. Well, the same is true for us in God, that we have an idea as to what we really think the problem is in this world, and really even with us, and yet God comes to us and says the problem really is that you've misdiagnosed what the problems are. So take a look at the three times the way Jesus does this. In verse 15, he says, there's nothing outside of a person that by it going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of the person are what defile him. Uh, verse 18, he says this, the second time, do you not know that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? And he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And the third time, verse 23, Jesus again reaffirms all these evil things come from within 
This is what defiles a person. So the problem is, is the religious leaders had it all wrong. They thought that by washing your hands, by going through certain ceremonial cleansings, that by somehow being able to purify, to wash themselves, to cleanse themselves externally, that somehow they would actually be right. They would somehow clean and purify. They would be ready. They'd be ripe. They'd be appropriate to be able to enter into God's presence. What Jesus is saying is really you guys are ignorant. You don't get it. You don't understand. And he actually uses some very descriptive terms. He actually goes to excessive lengths to really define this, to which some moms actually might be like, that's potty talk, Jesus. Well, Jesus becomes very graphic. He's like, look, the reality is, you eat food. It goes to your stomach. It goes out your, through your system, into the latrine, into the toilet. He's like, you're not defiled by eating your food. It was, it's what comes out of you. That's actually disgusting. It's not what goes into you. And here you're spending all this energy, all this excessive time, all this excessive thought and consternation over trying to purify what goes into you. And you're missing the whole entire point. You're living in ignorance. You don't understand who God is. You don't understand the way God operates. You don't understand the way the heart, the human heart functions. And therefore, you're missing everything. You're misdiagnosing really the cause of defilement. I want you to listen very carefully to the words of Augustine. I think it's really important. I don't agree with everything Augustine says, but this is a very insightful statement that he said. He said this, The essence of sin is disordered love. I love this. The essence of sin is disordered love. In other words, it's the idea that really there's a twofold problem. It's one, that we love the wrong things, because sometimes we think of sin as being like, oh, you love the wrong things, like, oh, you're a drug addict, or oh, you're into porn. Man, you're a real sinner. That may be part of it, may not be less than it, but it's far more than that. Because if that's all we think in terms of sin as being loving the wrong things, and we've missed the real bigger picture of what sin is and how the Bible describes sin. So sin is not just simply loving the wrong things, but it's also loving the right things in the wrong order. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Power. Some people are like, power is bad. You've got to watch out. You've got to somehow strip power from as many people as you can because power is evil. I actually contend with that. That's not true. I mean, yes, I would say all people need limits, but the reality is this, is that evil as an action is not sinful. How do I know that? Because God has all of it. God possesses all of it. He's not evil. He doesn't use power for evil. He only uses power for righteousness, for holiness, for the establishing of his holy name. So power is not evil, but what happens if you make, as an individual being, make power an ultimate value in your life? What type of person do you become? You become someone that steps on the toes of other people. You become someone that is, will gladly destroy other people. The funny thing is we live in a culture today that, that we look at Old Testament, and we think of idols, and we think of idolatry, and we're like, idolatry, man, that's like such an old, ancient, archaic thing that happened like 2,000 years ago, or it happened in a jungle in another foreign third world type country. But the reality is we think we're not idolaters. We're, we, it's not who we are. It's not what we do. But the way the Bible describes that there are idols, external idols, but there are also idols, I think Ezekiel describes them as idols of the heart. Meaning there are things that we value. An idol really is anything that we value above and beyond all other things in our life. Whatever we derive our sense of identity, whatever we derive our sense of peace, whatever we derive our sense of self-worth from, those are our idols. Those are the things that we bow down to. And it's interesting because in our modern day culture, we can look at 
ancient civilizations and ancient cultures, and we'll like tisk tisk them, and we'll be like, I can't believe it, man. Like they sacrifice babies to their gods. They like sacrifice people. That's horrible. Well, let me ask you this. So if someone, for example, takes power and raises power, this good thing, to a level of a God thing, and they will stop at nothing to obtain power, to the point of they will actually turn their back on their family, they will turn their back on their closest friends and their family relationships, they will turn their back on the people that actually help them get there, they will do anything they can. Are they not sacrificing people? Maybe not by a blade, not, maybe not over a fire, but they're sacrificing people. I would contend and say it's the same thing. That whatever we take, even if it's a good thing, and we elevate it to an ultimate thing in our lives, an ultimate thing that we derive our significance from, our worth from, our value from, our peace from, our comfort, our security from, that thing the Bible's going to describe is an idol. It's a disorder, disorderly love. And the essence of that is sin. So, I want to show you naturally how the types of things that Jesus describes come out of that. Let me try to put it to you this way as concisely as I can. Inside of every single one of us is a heart. Not a thing that pumps blood through our body. We have one of those, I'm assuming. Um, but the reality is, is that all of us have something inside of us that drives us. And the way that the Greeks and the Jews would have understood this is a heart is something that, that drives you. It's your passions. It's where the seed of your affections reside. And it's where the overarching drives and passions of your heart are generated. So if you look at it this way, all of us have a heart. All of us have the sense of a motor. There's a motor. There's an engine inside of us that's creating something. Maybe describe it this way. It's a factory, and it's creating something. It's creating desires, and those desires are being created to be poured out on, praised on, poured out in terms of worship and praise on something. So the issue is not whether or not, like, do I worship? Do I not worship? The issue is, what do you worship? We all worship something. You can't run from that. The Bible is very clear on that, and I'll show you that in a second here, that all of us worship something. We either worship the true creator God in whose image we're created, or we worship one of his created things, person or thing. Something of which, though, don't be fooled, all of us derive our sense of worth, value, peace, poise, recognition, on something. The Bible says that thing or that someone is our idol. So the reality that we need to understand with is looking at this and that if Augustine is right that we really find ourselves in the essence of sin as being disordered love. And what ends up happening is that idolatry starts really in our hearts by saying we're looking for an alternate God. There's something about God that we're skeptical of something about God that causes us to become a little bit cynical of something about God that we are not certain of. In other words, it starts with a distrust in who God is. And so we're looking for an alternate God. And what ends up happening in the path of idolatry is by looking for these alternate gods, we end up with a counterfeit, lowercase God. Something inevitably will become a solution to us. Something inevitably will present itself with all sorts of promises that will say, if you give yourself to me, if you give your time to me, if you give your money to me, if you invest in me, I promise to give back to you peace, security, sense of poise, and identity, value. 
problem is, is that none of these things can ever deliver, ever. And if they do deliver, it's very short-lived. It's not eternal. And at the end of the day, none of them have the capacity to satisfy the bigness of your desires. That's why people oftentimes, when they're on a pursuit to get something, really working hard, whether it be a job or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a career path or even a child. Like, I met people that are like, I really want to have a kid. And once one of these days I have a kid, I will be satisfied. So they get the kid and they realize it's really tough. Like, it's not like you lose sleep. You end up placing more sacrifices of your life on the table for that kid. And it ain't giving you that much back. Like, except dirty diapers and crying. And it's, it's hard. It's hard work. You begin to realize one of the reasons why people at the end of the day, oftentimes when they hope to get what they think is going to give them what it's promising, when they get it, they realize they're still dissatisfied because what they've discovered finally at the end of the day, they're the same person that they were before they set out on the pursuit. They're hoping for change. They were hoping to somehow do something with the defilement, the brokenness, the thing that's not right inside, thinking that somehow by obtaining this dream, getting this goal, obtaining this girlfriend, this boyfriend, this job, this thing, whatever it is, this money, this power, this resource, whatever it is, it will bring satisfaction, it will bring peace, but what ends up happening is that every false god the Bible is going to identify that feeds and lies to our hearts, lies to our souls, only can offer a parody of God's characteristics. It can only offer a cartoon version of what God's like. It can never fully satisfy us. And what you also discover, that at the end of the day, that every false god that we ever give ourselves to, every false dream that we ever bow down to, every false idol that we pursue, will always end up demanding of us far more than we can ever give. Really, it boils down to this. It's this idea that everything that we go pursue that's not God, at some point, will end up saying to us, It's your life for mine. In other words, I will make you pay. I will make you bleed. I will make you sweat. I will make you sacrifice for me. And at the end of the day, you end up giving more than you can ever even imagine. And then you're stuck. The gospel, on the other hand, is the announcement that God has come and says, it's not your life for mine. It's my life for yours. I lay my life down for you. I won't leave you feeling undefiled and unclean. I will, take your undef- I will take your defilement and your uncleanness, and I will bear it myself, and I will exchange it for my cleanliness, my purity, my wholeness. It will be my blood for yours. That's what Jesus says. And so the reality is when we begin to understand this is that the second axiom is that we always misdiagnose really what causes our defilement. And... I want you to listen to uh, a quote from a guy by the name of um, David Foster Wallace. Kind of an interesting guy. I went online. He's totally not a Christian. He was a writer, um, kind of a postmodern writer. He was well known for writing a lot of weird, like esoteric type stuff. Very intelligent, very smart. There's a lot of YouTube videos that you can watch of him. Some of his stuff's kind of weird and 
crazy, but some of it's very interesting and lucid and just makes a lot of sense. I want to read you a quote from him. Like I said, he's not a Christian, so everything obviously has to be always weighed with Scripture, but what he says is very in line, and I'll show you why, with the Apostle Paul in everything that we're talking about here. So this guy, very interestingly enough, what ended up happening was a lot of stuff that he had written in the past was oftentimes written very ambiguous. It was meant to be discussed over drinking a cup of coffee and trying to figure out what he said because it was so uh, ambiguous. But uh, he was actually giving a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and then back in 2008, so just a few years later, he actually ended up committing suicide, and he died. Um, But I want you to listen to the speech that he had given. Here's what he says. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God spiritual thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ, Allah, the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or some sort of ethical principles, is that pretty much, and this is where this gets really poignant, is that pretty much anything else you worship will end up eating you alive. amazing what he says. He begins to give the four examples. One, he says, if you worship money, it, if this is where you tap real meaning in life, where you will, then you will never feel as if you have enough money. If you worship your body, beauty, or sexuality, you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start to show, you will die a million deaths. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you in your own fear. If you worship your intellect, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're the default settings of our heart. Powerful. Paul the Apostle actually words what he says in a very similar way, but listen to what Paul says, because I think there's an insight here. Really, at the end of the day, he's saying we can't remove ourselves from worship. This is the problem, really, with all humanity. It's either the problem or the solution. Worship will either lead you down a path of destruction, death, and damnation, or worship will save you. It'll it'll transform you. It'll change you. It's not a question of, like, will you worship? It's a question of what do you worship? What gods do you give your heart to? What people do you give your heart to? You're all to. What are the things that you will devote yourself to? If you give yourself to the wrong things, they will crush you. They will lie to you. They will make empty promises to you that they cannot fulfill or keep. But if you see what God has done for you, you'll be changed. So what we see here, again, is that the third axiom is this, is that we are incapable of removing our own defilement. Again, the first axiom, we're all defiled. Second axiom, we oftentimes misdiagnose what the real problem is. The third axiom is that we are actually incapable of removing our own defilement. And really the reason why we're incapable of removing it is because it's an issue of the heart. We love the wrong things. We love the wrong things. Without getting into a long theological analysis of this, but this is what some scholars would say about the will being enslaved or in bondage meaning the reason why our hearts are slave to other things is because we serve what we love we pursue those things that are passionate about 
And at the end of the day, the Bible is very clear that no one pursues God. No one seeks after righteousness. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us are regularly looking for creative ways to dodge God, to remove God, as creative ways as we can come up with. Some of us, we're so creative, we try to ditch God in church. I'll go to church. I'll be religious. So here's four different ways in which we try, and I'll get to that one in a second, four different ways in which we as a culture, and oftentimes maybe even individuals, oftentimes try to correct the problem of our own defilement, realizing that something's not right within our lives. So because we don't define the problem correctly, uh, what ends up happening is we start applying the wrong types of solutions. So we turn to things, for example, like pop culture. Like, oh, pop culture offers solutions, right? One of the reasons why we as a community, we as people, we see Culture is popular, and we turn to it. We love it. We even have a show that we call Idol. Why? Because we're actually creating ways, creative ways, for people to fall in love with somebody that can accomplish things that you never can. I mean, can you imagine? Think about it this way, all right? Can you imagine if the scale for righteousness was upon who can sing the best? I, mean, I think about this, and I watch American Idol with my daughter, so I'm not, I'm not distancing. It's bad. I shouldn't watch it. But the point of the matter is this, is that, you know, the reality is, imagine, imagine if, like, the scale that God judges you on is how well you sing, so you get up there and like you're gonna sing. Some of you are horrible. You open your mouth and like chandeliers break and things are bad. It's not good. The whole cosmos fragments when you you know. The point of the matter is you realize I'm not gonna pass that test. If I have to be in that exam, I will fail. All right. Others of you are like really good singers. I've heard some of you. You're really good. So you get up there and like, I can pass this test. And you sing, you're like, this is awesome. And everybody's clapping, like all humanity, like, you've got a good voice. And then, then, I just imagine in my mind, an angel comes out. Like God's firstborn creation, you know, not Jesus, but an angel. Like one of God's great creations. That sing, powerful being, gets up there, opens his mouth, begins to sing, and sings like an angel, right? Because he's an angel. Totally, totally makes you as good as you sound, sound horrible. Sound like me, like some of you, right? You realize that there's always somebody better than you. And if you're honest with yourself, that feels horrible. If that's your form of justification. If that's the way that you deal with the uncleanliness of your heart. If that's the way that you push back death. That's the way you push back sin and brokenness. Pop culture doesn't offer any salvation. If you look to the way the system of this world sets itself up and says, we know that you can't accomplish becoming a rock star, so we'll put rock stars in front of you to idolize, to love, so that in watching them, you can be absorbed in them. Does that make sense? By seeing the stars, you can be taken up in them. You can be part of them. You can even join their Twitter accounts. So you can know what they're thinking at any moment of the day. And we actually think, like, ah, oh, I can be brought up in a proxy relationship somehow. Like, even though I will never sing because I'm not that good, I can somehow be part of, consumed by this. But you know what? If you're honest with yourself, you just end up feeling lousy at the end of the day because you realize that's never you. You will never do that. You can never be that. And you failed. You're God. And your solution let you down. Politics is another way. We think by funding more systems, more structures, more means, somehow we'll be able to push back the ignorance in our hearts and somehow 
reformat the way that we think, the way that we create ourselves, the way that we define ourselves as a culture and who we really are. And at the end of the day, that's failed too. I mean, again, we're not that far removed. I mean, at least to simply pick up, you know, Google and do a quick research or pick up a book and realize that World War II is not that far away. I mean, I read a book a few years ago. It was called Hitler Scientist. It was amazing. Did you know that Hitler had the, the, the leading scientist in the entire world prior to World War II? The leading scientist. The most educated people in the entire world came out of Germany. And then the Holocaust. Politics, education, it may help to some degree create some sense of social order and functionality and rules and laws in order to help protect. It might actually to some degree maybe put some sort of a weight or constriction over the wickedness and the evil that's there. I don't want to in any way underestimate the value of having a good police force or having a good uh, army. But at the end of the day, all you're simply doing is you're taking this big thing and you're simply trying to wrap your fingers around, your hands around it, and compress it. You're not changing the fundamental makeup of anybody by doing that. You're just constricting it. And what happens if you take your hands off of it? To me, I've given this analogy before, it's like taking one of those like little squishy balls you buy at Staples. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying? Pick those things up and they squish. And then you take your hands off it and like 30 seconds later it goes back to a regular ball. Like as long as you have your hand upon it, it's squished. It's the same shape as your hand. Take your hand off of it, it goes back. Or you can take an aluminum can and squish it and take your hands off of it, and it doesn't go back. What you found fundamentally is one has been changed. The can has been changed. The squishy ball has not been changed. You haven't changed it. It's just simply compressed it. That's the way some of us actually try to deal with our hearts. We think that if we can just somehow have external pressures pushing down upon us, clamping down upon us, we'll be changed. You've never changed the fundamental core makeup of who you truly are. But that's what the gospel seeks to address. So, politics, pop culture, religion. Let me say how the religion typically works. Because in a lot of ways, religion is very insidious. Let me say there's a lot of different ways in which you can slice and dice religion. But really, at the end of the day, it boils down to this. And I would say this. The distinction between every other world religion and cult that sort of deviates from Christianity or the core teachings of Christianity is that at the centrality of all of them is some sort of a teaching, whether it come from a, uh, a, a sage or a teacher or a leader or someone like Buddha or Confucius or uh, some sort of good sage or teacher who had great wisdom. And as long as you adhered to the teachings and the wisdoms and the principle and the ideas and the advice from those teachers, then you would actually find a path or a way to which you would free yourself, you would somehow be able to rid yourself or at least endure with suffering like Buddhism or somehow work through some of the pressures that are inside your heart. Modern pop psychology in some ways can also attribute those same types of um, ways to somehow deal with the heart. At the end of the day, all of them have this one thing in common, that if you apply certain principles and ideological uh, ideas, and somehow you will actually end up getting yourself into a better place. But at the end of the day, you've not changed the fundamental core structure of your heart. Christianity is the only one that comes along and says, you have nothing to offer. But Jesus does everything for us. Salvation doesn't come from what you do for God. It comes from what he's done for you. 
This is absolutely different than anything else that's ever lived. But let me just say one other thing to kind of nuance our religion and religions from even Christian religions. Because in Christian religions, there are ways in which even within the Christian church, this message can be lost. And I'll show you how this gets lost even within Christian churches. What happens even within Christian churches is people come along, and well-intentioned, well-meaning, and they say, look, if you really want true salvation, true freedom in your life, the way that you do that is you've got to pray every day. You've got to read your Bible every day. You've got to have devotions every day. You've got to join our church. You've got to dress a certain way. You've got to worship a certain way. And by doing these things, you will actually find your heart will become free. Now, don't get me wrong, because we talked about this a lot last week. I think there's great value in reading every day and praying every day and going to church. All those things are valuable and good. But what I'm saying is that when these become systems that you use to somehow push back the defilement, you're not free. You're not changed. You've just put a new yoke of oppression on you that's sanitized, baptized into the Christian concepts, and you're bound again. You may not be bound by drugs, but you're bound by religious tradition. You may not be bound by porn, but your heart still is riddled with judgment and cynicism and criticism towards everyone that doesn't act like you, look like you, think like you, believe like you, and you're not free. Your heart is not free to love. Your heart is not free to accept. Your heart is not free to embrace the way God did that with you. The darkness never got pushed back. The uncleanness and the impurity never got dealt with. You've just settled into another form of trying to deal with the problem. You can't deal with it through pop culture, politics, religion. And some of us get to the place where we just realize, I can't deal with it anymore at all. And so what we do is we try to numb it. We feel the pain. We feel the defilement. We feel the brokenness. So we numb it. We numb it by way of drugs. We numb it by way of music. We numb it by way of media and entertainment. Friends, hobbies, sports. I mean, you can go down the list. Keep going and going and going. It just keeps going on and on. Because at the end of the day, we realize something's not quite right, and so we try desperately to numb it. But it doesn't work. Because the defilement's still there. The brokenness is still there. The painful reminders of it are still there. And we've never really rewired the circuitry of the heart. We've just, I've described it this way, we've just simply supplemented one idol for another idol. We've supplemented one lowercase God for another lowercase God. We've never changed. Jesus wants to change us. And that brings us to the very last thing. The fourth axiom is this, is that we can actually become clean and undefiled through Jesus. This actually comes by way of an interesting passage in Mark chapter 7. He says this in verse 19. And it's just a parenthetical statement that Mark adds. And he says this, by this, he says, he declared all things or all foods to be clean. This is fascinating. This is like one of those little parenthetical statements that you can read past and like, what's that all about? And just keep reading and you miss it. It's a really powerful statement. Uh, there's a lot of different things that you can go on and talk about this. I mean, I think one, I think very clearly he's probably saying that all foods are clean. Like, you can go out and have a pork sandwich. It's, it's all good. It's like the, the, the cleanliness laws of eating pork or shellfish, it's done away with. It's like, I mean, as long as it's cooked and clean, go for it. Like, you don't want to eat it and die from 
sickness and illness, but it's clean. It's, 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 not undef- it's not defiling anymore. And so what most scholars believe is that one of the things you need to understand with regard to Jesus and the Torah, because we saw this last week, that Jesus had a very, very high view of the Bible. Very high view. Jesus didn't come to sort of destroy the Bible. He didn't come and say, guys, I'm here. The Bible, we don't follow the Bible anymore. Like, Jesus comes and actually honors the Bible. So we said this last week. Like, if you say, I love Jesus, but I'm very cynical and skeptical of the Bible, then at least be honest and admit that you don't know the Jesus you claim you love. You've actually created your own Jesus. It's not the real biblical Jesus because the Jesus in the Bible is a Jesus that has a very high view of the Bible, has a very high view of Scripture, and loves God's Word. He doesn't come to do away with God's Word. He comes to fulfill God's Word. There's a radical difference there. So just make sure that you understand clearly who Jesus is and what Jesus loved. So the point that I would make is this, is that most scholars realize that in the Old Testament, throughout the entire history of the Old Testament, uh, God was always giving signs to the people of Israel. So if I can say this respectfully, one of the things that you'll discover very quickly about God is that God loves to advertise. He loves PR, good PR, about himself. He loves to proclaim his name. And he has many different ways by which he promotes his glory, his beauty, his fame. And what God was always doing throughout the Old Testament, as well as even in the New Testament, he was using little signposts, little signs, little indicators, that if you follow those things to their, to their destination, they will lead you to something. I'll give you an example. Passover. Passover was a sign. God even calls it that. It was a sign. It was a meal that you ate. And it was in the form of a meal. It had bread, lamb, had all these other things that when you ate of it, you were to always remember that God not only redeemed the people of Israel from slavery and bondage, that also God one day will also deliver them by another deliverer. And so every time they ate that meal, the meal would point backward and point forward. We as Christians have our own little signs. We take communion. We do baptism. We're going to do a baptism in a few uh, weeks. And the reason why we do that is because we're not saved by baptism. We do baptism because baptism is a sign that you are saved. And it's something that points to what God has done for us. In other words, by doing this particular sign or engaging in this particular sign, you point to the one particular purpose that God intended. So, for example, the cleanliness laws throughout the Old Testament, when God said... You know, make sure, priest, if you guys are going to eat something, you wash your hands. Make sure that if you're going to bring something in your house, that you wash your clothes. Make sure that if you're going to go to, to the synagogue or go to the temple and offer a sacrifice, make sure that you do so and you're clean. You wash your hands. You wash your garments. You make sure that you have a lamb. Make sure the lamb is spotless. Make sure the lamb is clean, all these other things. So God goes through great uh, meticulous detail to make certain that his people follow these rules And really the point of all of these things was not so that, you know, offering a lamb is going to somehow do away with their sin. The lamb was always intended to point forward to something. So when Mark makes this little comment by Jesus declaring all these things clean, he's really what he's saying is this, is that the purpose for which all the cleanliness laws pointed have been fulfilled. In other words, the reason why God said, clean yourself, wash your hands, avoid these certain foods, Make sure that there are certain stops that you are set up that are set up along the way before you go into the temple and worship because God wanted his people to understand that you can't just go cruising into the temple at any time of any day, anytime you want, and just be like, I'm going to go worship God. Because you can't do that because you are defiled. You're broken. We sin. We've turned away from God. So therefore, we need some sort of sacrifice to be paid in order to cleanse us and to cover us. So God set up these stops along the way. This is, these are signs that point to an ultimate purpose. And here Mark very clearly is saying, 
all the signs of these cleanliness laws are pointing to the one who's standing here among us right now. And because he's here, the path to true cleanliness, to true purging of our defilement, has become complete. What Mark is saying is so powerful, and if you believe it, so liberating, is that he's saying through Jesus, we have the fulfillment and the completion of everything in Christ. I want to finish with two very quick stories, the first of which is a biblical story out of the book of what's called Zechariah. Some of you might have heard the story. Uh, Zechariah tells us uh, of a vision that he had, and in the vision he sees this guy by the name of Joshua. Joshua is the high priest. In his vision, he notices that Joshua uh, standing before God, probably on what's called the day of Yom Kippur. It was a day in which uh, the high priest had the opportunity to go into the Holy of Holies. Or, uh, there's an, like an outer court and other court. There are three main courts that the, the, the priest had to go through. But the main court, the, entr- the, the middle court, the uh, Holy of Holies, uh, you can only go in there if you're a high priest and only once out of the year. And so Joshua, this is his time, he goes into the Holy of Holies on that particular day before the Lord, and something very unique happens. Now, what you need to understand is that every time a high priest would go in, he would usually spend the first week coming up into that point, going through all sorts of ceremonial cleansings and washings. He'd read the scripture all night long. He'd meditate upon God, and as he would come into the area and he would come out and wash, he'd be greeted by all the people cheering him on, rooting him on, because it's like he's the representative. I mean, he's the high priest. He's going to stand before God and wash away or declare that the sins of Israel and the sins of the priests and the sins of the high priests are all washed and that it's all good, that life is good, that the, 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 the defecation of our soul, the soiling of our souls are cleansed because God has announced that over the people. So what happens in this vision that, that Zechariah is shocked by, because it tells us in this vision, it says, verse 3, it says, Then I saw him standing before the angel of the Lord. The problem is, though, is that he's standing before God after all this ceremonial cleansing, and Zechariah notices that he's not clean, but all over his garments is human defecation. And the question that we have to ask is, like, how, how did that happen? Like, how could a priest who meticulously goes through all these ceremonies and laws to clean himself, to walk, how can he be soiled with feces on his clothing? It doesn't make any sense. Most scholars would agree that really what's happening here is that this is God's way through a prophetic vision saying, listen, Zechariah, you need to understand this is how I see all people. Joshua the high priest is a representative of all the people, and all the people, even at their best works of righteousness, stand before me in defecated clothing, soiled clothing. They're all defiled. They've all been stained. But here's where the promise comes that God makes to Zechariah. He says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from off of Joshua the high priest. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you in a pure vestments. And then God says, for thus says the Lord, you and your friends are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, and I will remove your iniquity in a single day. Here's what God says to Zechariah about Joshua the high priest. He says, he's soiled. He's stained, but in a day, in an instant, through the branch, which is an indication of the, mess- the Messiah that one day would come, through this one man, in one day, in one act, in one instance, all the defecation, all the soiling, all the defilement will be washed away in an instant. 
And what's amazing, when you begin to step back from the rest of the story, what you see as the story goes on, as the narrative goes on, Jesus, another Joshua, another great high priest comes. Joshua literally is transliteration of the name Jesus. Another Joshua comes. In the week prior to his great sacrifice, he's not necessarily greeted with a bunch of people that are excited. I mean, yes, it happened on Palm Sunday. But as the week went on, rather than cheering Jesus on, they were asking for his death. Rather than being clothed in robes of righteousness, our great Joshua had his robes stripped off of him so that he was naked. Rather than being bathed and becoming clean from his defilement, Jesus was bathed in spit, human spit. Ultimately, what the Bible is wanting for us to understand is that Jesus, the undefiled king, took upon our defilement. was crushed for us so that we who are defiled in an instant can become clean. We're all filthy. We all find ways to try to deal with that filth. We can't deal with that filth on our own, but one can. Jesus does. I want to finish with this thought because at the end of the day, some of us might be like, I, I, I get that, I believe that. But, you know, Brian, at the end of the day, I still struggle, man. I still have these, like, my heart still longs for and lusts after all these things that I know are destructive. And I keep finding myself, give myself over to these idols and still find myself trapped. And, and how do I get out of these things? How do I find my way out of these things? And Paul in Romans chapter 1, I didn't read it, but Romans chapter 1 basically describes what happens is, People turn their backs from God, and by turning their backs from God, they begin to worship and serve false gods. So in other words, he actually uses language that says they worship, they give their heart to, that's what worship is, and then they end up serving. So usually what ends up starting out, it's just sort of an innocuous relationship that says, oh, I value this thing, and I'll get involved into it. Ends up at some point, no one really knows when that point is, no one knows when that line's crossed, at some point, you end up becoming a servant to it. It could be a relationship. You're a servant to that relationship. You can't break it off. It could be an addiction. You're a servant to it. You can't get out. You're lost. You're stuck. You're deconstructing. You're being destroyed. It can be a lot of different things, but at the end of the day, what ends up happening is we end up worshiping and serving these things, and yet Jesus comes and says, listen, I have the means. I have provided the way by which to... To remove your filthiness. To remove your stain. And so again, some of us may affirm that and be like, I get that. But how do I live this out practically? How do I move myself? Because if in reality, Jesus says the real problem is not what you eat. It's not about how religious you are. It's not about all the good deeds you do. It's not about how many people you're witnessing to or sharing the gospel with. It's not about all these religious attempts to somehow rewire, retool our lives to become good and righteous. The real problem is not out there is what I'm trying to say, what Jesus says. The real problem's in here. Our hearts are these factories that are constantly in love with good things that are disordered and bad things that are destructive. So how do we change the fundamental nature of a heart that is always giving itself out in worship and praise for the wrong things or the good things that are wrongly ordered? There was an article that was written years ago by a Puritan. I love the Puritans. My confession there. 
by a guy by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And he writes in his little article, it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. All right? The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I'm going to read you a little statement where it says, it's, I, I think it may have the power to change you. This is what he says. I'm done. He said, it's a rare, he says, it's rare that our bad habits or flaws simply disappear by dying off, by reasoning them away, or by mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. In other words, he goes on to say, and one taste may be, may be made to give way to another. For example, the love of money can cast out the love of being lazy. I like that example. Some lazy dudes just like always lounge around playing video games. Like that guy at some point can stop being lazy in an instant if he falls in love with the prospect of making money, right? But the reality is that's a problem because money becomes another god that will actually ensnare you. So in other words, to break out of the orbit of the destructive love affair with money, you've got to find something else. And unless that something else is God, you will change and trade one idol that will bring destruction in your life for another idol that will bring destruction in your life. And he goes on to say this. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. Listen carefully. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of of a new one. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great, predominant, and supreme affection, namely God, that it is delivered from the tyranny of all former desires. That's how our hearts change, guys. To the degree that you see the love of God revealed through Christ on the cross for you in taking your place bearing your defilement, your shame, to the degree that you see he did that for you. And you believe that. You'll be changed. You know why? Because your heart will be consumed by love. You'll be changed. You will love Jesus. That's why, that's why we, we're talking about this can't be religion. This can't be saying, you know what, I'll become religious. That won't help you. You'll become a slave. You'll become arrogant. You'll become critical. You'll become a jerk. You will not change. You may stop being greedy, but you will just simply shift those emotions from the heart to something else that's equally wicked and evil, and you will never change. Unless you see what Jesus did for you, and you believe it, by faith and repentance, you'll be changed got to see that you got to believe it and you got to be willing to let go of any other former thing for the sake of the beauty that's been revealed through Christ and I want to finish I'm going to have the team come on up and we're going to sing some songs in closing in response God's word goes out it's revelation our singing our worship our praying is in response to God so there's revelation there's response I want to ask you right now, why don't we turn off the lights right now just so that you guys know this is not between you and anybody else around. This is between you and God. If you're here this morning and you see that there are areas in your life that you find that are disordered affections, things in which you have fallen in love with that are evil, that are destroying you, or if you've fallen in love with things that are good things and they're disorderly, they're disorganized, you love the right things in the wrong way, and as a result of that, your life is crumbling. Your life is falling apart. The very thing that you're looking to to bring peace and hope 
and security and love in your life is actually letting you down. The reason why it keeps letting you down is because it cannot satisfy the weight of your desires. Only God can. To the degree that you see that God is strong enough, big enough, powerful enough, loving enough, for you to turn your trust and confidence to, and you see what he's done for you, then you'll be rescued. You'll be saved. And conversely, you'll be free to actually love people, to serve other people. You'll be free. If you're here right now and you look at your life and you see it's riddled with disordered loves, disordered affections, things that are binding you, you want to be set free, just stand up where you're at. I want to pray for you. You may be a Christian. You may not be a Christian. Just stand up right where you're at. I just want to pray for you. It's between you and God. I know this is always kind of one of those tough things. And again, I say this every week. Standing up is not going to save you. There's nothing magical about it. But it is a way of you saying, I want to be liberated. I want to be set free. I want to have my life reordered according to the gospel, according to God's power and spirit in at work in me. Anybody at all, why don't you just guys stand up right where you're at. I want to pray for you. Right on, thank you. Just stand up right where you're at. I know there's, I'm sure there's probably some more. That guy's just dealing with your heart. All we want to do is pray for you. Nothing weird, nothing funny is going to happen. We just want to pray for you. We want to come around you. You guys are family. We love you. We're happy that God is moving in your heart. We want to support that. We want to pray for that. We want to surround that. If there's any here that you feel as if you're under some yoke of oppression that's crushing you, maybe fears are crushing you, maybe sickness and disease or fears that come from thinking you have sickness and disease and it's crushing you and you want to have God liberate you, stand where you're at. Just anybody, anything that's going on, I want to pray for you. What I'd like to do right now is I'd like to have people that are sitting around you that are standing reach out, stand up maybe, reach across an aisle if you have to, go lay hands on these people. And I'd like for you guys just to pray out loud for them. Um, you can ask them if you'd like what's going on, or you can just pray for them, trusting that God will actually give you guys words to say. Just lay hands on them. The reason why we lay hands on you is just a way for us to say that you're not alone. You're in a body. We love you. We support you. We believe Jesus has the desire and the longing and the power to set you free. So go ahead right now. Start praying for each of these people here. And then uh, these guys will lead us in some worship. We'll partake of communion. If you're one of our guests, meaning if you're not a Christian, for example, if you're not a Christian, don't partake of communion. The reason why we do that is because the communion really is a family meal. It's a meal that we take in recognition of our, of our Father who graciously, lovingly gave his son for us. It's a family meal. If you're not in that family, you'd like to be in that family, you can join that family, be a part of that family by way of faith and repentance. Trust what he has done, everything that we described, and repent from things that are destroying you. Be part of that family. Eat the meal and receive the good, kind grace of God. We're going to sing, confess sin. We'll sing a few songs. We'll worship and then we'll dismiss. So let's worship. You guys keep praying. And the rest of you guys, we'll just pray along and then we'll worship.